The VR Report Podcast with David Gino. Hey, Karis, welcome to the VR Report, my man. Hi, David. It's great to be here. Yeah, <laughs> cool. Hey, Karis, uh, for the audience, you want to give a brief intro of your origin story? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Karis O'Connell. I am currently the head of UX at a, at a small startup called Bootloader Studio, uh, based out of Vietnam. But my history is uh, really the last sort of 15 years or so in spatial computing, designing within that medium for companies like such as like Nokia back in the day, the very, very earliest AR sort of experiences, and then through Meta and Google and Amazon and so on. So it's kind of big company tech, seen behind the curtain, small scrappy startups <laughs> uh, and everything in between. Uh, but it's always to do with uh, the future of computing for me. That's the thing that drives me. That's cool, Karis. And then um, right now, uh, from when we discussed, you're, you moved out to the desert. Tell me about why that even happened. Yeah, I, so I left the Bay Area uh, earlier this year and moved out to the Mojave Desert. Um, not the most hospitable place in the world you could move, but as a, someone who often seeks out in a little bit of danger, like I like going off-road and camping and so on, uh, I felt it was like a natural evolution of those traits in my life. A um, bit different for my wife and kids. It's beautiful out here. Uh, it takes me, you know, an hour and a half to get to the nearest big, big city. Um, and to get to LA is just under two hours. So I kind of get the benefits of being close enough to, you know, the kind of metropolis um, culture while also still, you know, being in the middle of nowhere and looking at like Sierra Nevada, Death Valley and all of this. So for me, it's great. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you know, you work in technology, like invest in it day in and day out. But for your personal time, you like to be out in the the desert, be out in the nature. And, uh, you know, I think that's really interesting that you live that polarity. That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's good you mentioned that because I think that was something I wanted to really double down on after spending, you know, so much of my life in this like ultra deep area of technology with stuff on my face all the time devices, you know, all kinds of things, seeing all these different things. And I really crave that kind of raw lack of connectivity and like a kind of back to nature thing to sort of balance it out. So I'm not like completely, completely obsessed uh, with no escape. So cool. That's awesome. And talking about the, the topic for here today, the VR report, we talk about mixed reality, virtual reality, and augmented reality, everything in between X and R. And uh, in terms of mixed reality today, that's the hot topic. You yeah. actually wrote the book on designing for mixed reality several years ago before even mixed reality became you know part of the lexicon. Um, I'd like for you to explain to our audience your understanding of mixed reality and, and elaborate on how it stands out from other immersive technologies. Yeah, I mean, I think when I started writing the book in 2015, um, I was approached by O'Reilly at the time. And they were like, hey, you know, there's this emerging medium and, you know, do you want to talk to us? And then, you know, when they suggested writing a book, it was a bit weird because, um, you know, the first thing I think a lot of potential authors do is go look around for other books on the same topic to see, you know, oh, let's see what other people have said. 
about it and I found that I couldn't find anything. So it was a bit of a wild west. Uh, this was like the, you know, the days of the DK1 and, you know, the Meta 1 uh, uh, AR headset. And uh, I think the Vive had just come out. So it was really early. Everything was tethered. Everything was a lot of hassle to make it work. But I tried to just come at this with a kind of puristic, like, design angle and just say, hey, you know, one day this will become the norm for design. And so why not kind of try and get ahead and look at, like, what challenges there's going to be from a design perspective, you know, not looking at the engineering, but purely, like, how will people interact with this class of device or devices going forward? And so so that in itself was enough to me to just sort of want to jump in with both feet and write this thing, uh, even though, uh, you know, I have no reference particularly to say whether it would be right or wrong what I was writing. So, uh, and of course, you know, now the book has aged somewhat. You know, we're not in DK1 <laughs> era anymore. So, you know, when I go back and look at it, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, that's kind of like no longer a problem or oh, that, that is, you know, something that continues to be a problem. Etc. But you know, if I was to do it again, it would probably keep a similar theme. But you know, the devices and the class of devices have moved on so dramatically since those days. So it's, it's a lot easier now, I think. How does the historical context of computing, because uh, you also spent time at Nokia, influence the modern mixed reality experiences of today? What's your What's the context there? Yeah, I I, I guess. Um, I mean, I always personally, like I said, you know, looked at spatial computing as the natural evolution of all computing interfaces. It was like, okay, you know, we started off with the, the keyboard, the mouse, you know, the terminal. We moved through these different devices. Then we ended up with touch screens, you know, touching through glass, manipulating through glass. That started to kind of have a direct connection to the objects that we're manipulating with the GUI. And then taking that further with um, spatial computing, mixed reality, you know, it, it, the, the leap with that um, is the uh, essentially the Z, the Z axis, uh, which never existed before, really, in computing. You always have to care about the resolution, the screen, the size of it, you know, and that was it. That was kind of your design canvas is like you lay these buttons and boxes and arrows all over the place. And then, and then you just, you know, you manipulate those. But with the, the addition of the Z-axis and the idea of not understanding where the actor or the user is in any given scene, so you could be behind the UI or the UI is attached to a wall or whatever, this brought up all these different kind of challenges of context and how do you infer what you see in a UI to what's going on around that UI in the real world, say, in AR. And I think that, you know, that's the connection to the computers that we have today. They've largely been kind of dumb, you know, even with Alexa and, and Google Assistant and Siri and so on. It's still been a kind of weird call and response system where, you know, I mean, they're like hammering mechanical keys, my fingers, like the old days and punching in syntax and waiting for some result. Or I'm, you know, trying to speak robotically into a microphone and be like, you know, find me the blah, blah, blah. But with the idea of like the computer disappearing and you have all these sensors, suddenly the world can be your like your interface. So you should understand what's going on around you. So you don't need to have so much contextual uh, uh, kind of information that pads around the central query. So 
I think that's something that I find really, really quite interesting about the the, the medium and and just you know the designer the design for in this area going forward. So yeah, I mean that's 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 how I think of it right now. You know, Karis, that's really cool. You're you're an OG in this space in terms of this new modern era of what we call virtual reality. The last decade, um, you have a very unique approach because you've worked at some of the top companies, really focusing on these emerging technologies, but Designing for mixed reality is totally different uh, than the 2D spaces like you had mentioned. First of all, you are the viewer, you are the camera. So then you have to uh, design for those type of affordances. But what are your, some of your top three things as a designer that any designer going into XR for spatial computing differ from 2D? What are those three like key differences for so- someone who's designing in this space that they should think about? when they're designing for spatial, what are those t- three main things that you think they should know? I think one of them, the biggest one I often come back to is that in, in, in every like prior medium, in some way, just like directing a film, you're able to somewhat control the path that a user goes down, right? So they, they, they click a button, it moves to the next screen, it moves to the next screen and so on and so forth. And designers obviously spend a long time crafting user journeys. So they're like, oh, yeah, you know, they click here and see this, then they'll offer three options, and then they go off to these other things. Everything is very, very um, structured. But in a world, uh, like I mentioned, you know, where you're not quite sure of the situation and the environment where, you know, X may be happening or this thing might, you know, the user might want to do this thing right now. I think that's what makes it something that's very, very different. I've often said you cannot direct really um, inside of this medium effectively. But you can't create a singular narrative that you know is going to exist from start to finish. What happens is you can start something, but there are so many potential permutations depending on you know where the where the user is at that given time, the situation. Uh, at that given time, like what they're looking at, whether it's, you know, indoor, outdoor, bright light, no light. It's even hard to design the interface to be uh, legible at given distances. Like, is it near me? Is it far away from me? Um, am I looking at it from a distance now because I kind of stepped away? How is that going to work? And so I think that all these kind of challenges <clears throat> make it a, a very, very different medium to any medium that's kind of come before it you know i think that you know when i look back now at at designing obviously nokia you know for mobile and i think about all of the challenges that were there and all the books you had to read you know the best practices donald norman jacob nielsen etc you know those a lot of those things just don't really apply in the same way anymore in this this world because it's very very in the moment it's very very kind of declarative user interfaces situationally relevant and only temporarily available. So that makes it very difficult to actually, you know, because a lot of this still has to convert back down to 2D to share often with other designers or to document. And so even the documentation process, you know, the figmas and so on of the world that have been such a big hit struggle more in this medium where it's kind of more like a tree structure where any branch could happen at any given moment and it's more of a set of if this then that statements 
to how you design rather than a kind of beautifully logical flow from like start to finish. So I think that's something, yeah, again, the, it's, a lot of designers find it incredibly challenging and frustrating as a medium. They're like, why can't I just, you know, knock it out kind of thing. And I, I think that that misses the point of what the freedom of the medium will give you, essentially. Because if all we're going to do is put the interfaces that we have today floating in front of our face, we tap in on virtual buttons, it's like, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just stick to this because, you know, it works. It does the same thing. So, like, what's the point? Um, so I think that that's an evolutionary path that we have to go down altogether uh, to spatialization. Yeah, the, I think that was fantastic. I think the closest parallels in terms of designing for spatial, like, like you had really uh, delved deep into, is that it's really a change in medium of how you're designing those type of affordances. Yeah. I, I had a great conversation with Don Carson, who's a Disney Imagineer, who's also responsible for Walkabout Golf, one of my favorite VR games to socialize and hang out with friends. But he used his background at Disney, where even as an Imagineer, you're always thinking of the user's experience, even so much so when they're even designing the dioramas yeah. of you know, theme park rides. They're making sure that when they review the designs, they actually take these miniatures and see them at eye level of where the yes. viewer would be at the theme park. Yes. So I think that's really cool where spatial is now all of these things, that one extra dimension. And there are some tools that are coming out to help designers develop for 3D spaces. There's like bezel, mm -hmm. there's also shapes XR. Yeah. Have you used any of these cool. tools outside of Figma? Of course, like you, you had mentioned that 2D paradigm where there's a shift there. Have you used some of these 3D yeah, tools in your actually. experience? Yeah, I, I've used shapes XR. Um, I used that back early in the day. I think they were actually one of Meta's early customers, if I'm not mistaken. They were, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of all these new attempts to design in, inside of the medium, but I also, uh, one of the most effective ways of understanding that kind of how it will feel, uh, I used to call it like improvisational theater almost, where you would have a design team and you'd clear a physical space. And what you would do is you would talk and act out what's happening in front of you. And you might hold up, you know, a piece of cardboard that's got, you know, what the UI might be, and you might put it away from you or get someone to hold it. And the idea was that everybody could kind of see you and the things going on and you wording like what's meant to happen, but they'd be able to kind of move around this theater almost and see it from all angles to see the edge cases. Like, oh, actually that's not gonna work if, if, you know, if you're facing this way and that actually ends up being anchored over here, then, you know, you might miss, you know, a pop-up dialogue or whatever it is. So that's something in itself that um, I've, I, I found interesting is like the Shapes XR is doing it in the headset and manipulating objects and kind of putting them where you want them to be and attaching behaviors. But I also think it's interesting in a group setting as often design is done in a, in a team is to actually just add these things out. You know, you don't need too much detail in the early stages. And in some way, you want to see how socially weird it looks from the outside as well. So uh, you, there's a bit of that, you know, because I think that's something we don't have to think about with this. You know, no one thinks designing for this, like, what are you going to look like when you're pressing buttons? But of course, if you're in a headset and you're like, 
oh, I'm walking around like this. It's like, whoa, like that just, uh, yeah, that's not, uh, not great. So yeah, these, these new tools that are emerging though are really exciting. So I am always up for trying these things, of course. Yeah, I think in terms of designing for XR, using the tools that are appropriate, I think is very important. But you had a really exciting time and a unique perspective working at Google trying to figure out how a spatial OS would even yeah. uh, help users interact with technology. Can you kind of share uh, your experience there um, with, with designing for an OS in, in spatial and what it took and uh, what were you trying to accomplish? Uh, what were some of the things that you learned that might be beneficial for other developers? Yeah, I mean, Google was an interesting time. So I, I, I left Meta. Um, and I joined Google, they contacted me and said, Hey, do you want to come on board and lead this kind of stealth? They wouldn't tell me what it was <laughs> stealth thing. Uh, I kind of had an idea of what they were trying to do, but when I got there, you know, one of the things that I think I first noticed was the legacy of daydream, right? They were early with cardboard. Google was like, had a lot of knowledge already. I mean, I was blown away to be honest, the first year of being there at just what I, what I saw because it was so above and beyond what I thought they were at, um, both from a hardware perspective, capabilities, but also from a knowledge perspective on like, you know, a, a, a spatial operating system. I think where, what was interesting most at that time was there was a couple of things going on. There was an, an openness to new ideas, which was actively trying to avoid the Google Glass history. So, you know, as we all know, you know, Google Glass was a big kind of um, failure, public failure for Google. And the ghost of Glass kind of walked the corridors of the AR research group. So everybody who'd been at Google for a long time was always kind of like, oh, we're Google Glass, you know, let's not, let's not talk about that. And I felt like it was this weight on everyone's shoulders that meant that everyone was kind of open for brand new ideas. They were like, you know, there is no sacred cows. Let's try and make a spatial interface, a spatial operating system. And uh, I, I think the thing that stood out the most for me at Google was the passion in the space, which I'd never, and, and even since then, to be quite frank, I'd never seen the amount of people who were so driven to discover this future, this spatial future. But I think, you know, and, and this is no secret for Google, is that Google notoriously abandons things um, pretty, pretty sort of mercilessly if it doesn't hit the numbers or it doesn't look like it's going to be a massive hit uh, out the box. And of course, as we know, with, with this medium, it's a slow burning medium and it's not like a, a, a kind of overnight success story. Um, and that's where I think that I saw a lot of incredible hardware and a lot of incredible prototypes, a lot of incredible ideas that we designed um, and that worked for all intensive purposes, kind of start to just be like, I don't think we're going to go there. So um, that was a bit of a, you know, the flip side of the freedom and the excitement in Google and the knowledge base that was there, because people had come from all over the place, uh, you know, to Google. There was like legends like Kurt Akalay. He was from Silicon Graphics International. He was kind of the, one of the originators of, of computer graphics. And, you know, he'd sit next to me in the, in the unmarked building. And I felt like it was among all these people who could change the world. But 
one by one, it just ended up being quashed and being stopped. And like, oh, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. It was um, a really tough time for me because I'd seen such promise and I'd seen such things that, that, you know, could have given Apple easily a run for the money, easily, um, and just be kind of put to bed. And so that was a shame. But I met incredible people that went on to join Apple and various other companies, Meta and so on, uh, afterwards. So it's not all kind of bad news, but I think Google is just not the best company at sticking to things. That's the way. <laughs> yeah, or, or almost it's like an R&D project to, you know, like you said, if it hits, it's great, but Google has to invest in new technologies like this. And, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you, when you had joined Meta, I mean, uh, when you had joined Google, was we were working together at Meta, and you know, you you are the 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 shining beacon talking about spatial workspace for Meta, and that was a revolutionary thing that we were doing at MetaView, where we even won an AWE award. Yep. You know, um, I'm not going to do it justice as, as as you will. Can you talk about workspace for MetaView, and I wanted to know how that influenced you at Google and the operating system there. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good reminder, David, because, I mean, I think one of the things I've learned over the the last years is, particularly with Meta, Meta, the original Meta, OG, was how advanced in some ways it really was. Even though the the technology was not perfect, we know this, uh, the sensors weren't perfect, you know, there was a lot of issues with latency and so on. But if you think about the conceptual side of it, and you think about AWE, you know, uh, I just, you know, not to sidetrack, but I mentioned just actually reasonably briefly to somebody about, you know, when we had the phone and you could pull things out of the phone into into space and put them back in the phone. And they're like, what? How did you do this? (laughs) And it's like, you know, there's, uh, there were things we were doing that in some ways, you know, if Apple would show this, people's minds would be melting uh, from seeing this. But anyway, I mean, I think that the thing that I took from Meta that I took to Google on the work the workspace side was that, uh, number one, you know, the, you, you're always going to have the issue of like screen resolution, because obviously if you try to pop up a screen, just like a you know a computer monitor screen, uh, the resolution is often a lot lower. There's more eye fatigue. There's more you know um, you've got more issues with motion sickness and so on and so forth. If the tracking systems and the slams and time of flight is not working uh, as well as it should, especially as well as it didn't do. Sorry, back then, Google had much more powerful hardware um, than we'd ever we'd ever had, and arguably. To date, it's the most powerful hardware I've ever seen, including the Vision Pro. Um, And I think that that gave me a good hope that a lot of the challenges of making a workspace work in the real life and make it be a tool, not a gimmick, um, especially with Google integration and the idea of the cloud and, and all the stuff that Google could do very, very well, the software side. I felt like it was very, very close to being real, that kind of early vision that we had a meta, which arguably may never have happened, um, is something Google was like in their wheelhouse. They were like, oh, yeah, we can do this and at scale as well. So that made it double as hard when, of course, you know, <laughs> do it and shut it down 
Um, so yeah, that was kind of another thing I had to like bury deep inside of me of like, why is it so hard to do these things? So, um, yeah, that, that was a learning for sure. In terms of, um, understanding how operating systems work, it's really about getting that information as quickly as possible so that user can then process it almost in real time to figure out what to do next, right? Yes. Uh, whether to, uh, do context switching to different views, yes. Um, but you also have to have um, understanding of 3D space. Um, your work at Google with this OS, it, you know, does does that live on today? Like, what 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 has what, what's happened now? I mean, because Google has shown off so much stuff uh, in, in the last two years and made an announcement with a partnership with Samsung. Um, what what do you think the future holds for for Google and, and AR? Google is an unabashed kind of fast follow company, right? And there's one company that Google really follows fast and that's Apple. So I think, you know, Meta and others in the AR VR space, it's not something Google really cares about, but when Apple does something, then they sit up. They're like, we have to be aware that, you know, our closest rival is doing, you know, X. Um, and so we have to do something. I think that there was a bunch of unfortunate, um, how can I say, misdirections in Google over the last few years. These are well documented out there as well. <clears throat> and this resulted in a lot of different attempts at operating systems and even acquisitions. Uh, you know, Google acquired North back in the day um, because they kind of pivoted away from immersive uh, uh, I will, I'll go, I will say that, you know, I remember the actual conversation I had at that time saying, Hey, you know, we, we need to keep on the sort of immersive MR path. Uh, and I was told kind of unequivocally that, you know, Google, you know, they told me and said, Hey, Apple's never going to do immersive stuff. They're going to do lightweight, teeny tiny glasses first. And I was like, no, they're not. <laughs> They didn't mm. listen. And, uh, and then, of course, you know, they bought North and so on. And then there's been a bunch of backpedaling going on. There's been a bunch of like, oh, actually, let's stop doing that now as well. Oh, quickly, let's stop doing this. I think the Samsung uh, partnership is, is logical because the weakness, the, the, the Achilles heel of Google has always been on the hardware side, right? Building up that hardware division and the sheer amount of R&D dollars that Google has spent over the years on headsets and prototypes. I think they grew weary of handling the whole thing themselves. So now I think there's more chance that Samsung kind of picks up the hardware and does the fast follow. And then Google kind of comes along with, you know, hey, we've got Android, a spatial version of Android that you can like drop on this thing and you'll get access to the Play Store and all the rest of the goodness. Uh, and you don't need to worry, Samsung, about that side of things. So I think that the partnership, maybe they found the happy place, Google, where it's like just enough risk, just enough reward. Um, you know, after going through this tumultuous like last 10 years since Google Glass, which has been, you know, like I mentioned, a tough time for, for Google in total. Sure. Now let's jump forward to your position at Amazon as the head of futures design. We never even synced up after you joined Amazon, but I'd like you to kind of give any, uh, a walkthrough of your, your time there, what you were working on, uh, what you learned, 
uh, and just share with the audience of, of your experience there. Yeah, I mean, Amazon it was a very different beast to Google, unsurprisingly. And I think one of the things to, to, to add context to that was that, you know, after all the things at Google and after being in, uh, you know, mixed reality for such a long time and seeing so many things, you know, either not make it like Meta and Google and so on, um, I was pretty feeling pretty like, oh, I need to broaden my horizons. So I was still very, very much interested in the future uh, the future of, you know, spatial computing. But I also, um, and this is funny enough, while I was at Google, I joined a group inside Google called R&D for the built environment. It was an internal steering committee that was looking at how humans would want to work and live in the future. This included spatial computing, immersive computing as a core component. And that was my part within this operational sort of secret group inside of Google where our customer was Sundar. Uh, he was the only one who got those sort of findings. So when I went to Amazon, I wanted to double down a bit more on a broader understanding of what it means to design the future. So instead of seeing it through kind of, pardon the pun, but like rose tinted glasses, um, I wanted to be like, it's not just about people wearing headsets in the future. It's like, where are they gonna wear their headsets? What's going to power the headsets of the future? You know, are people going to be living more remote work in the future? What does that mean for the systems that support it? And I think that the the idea of, of futures for Amazon was really uh, trying to, our customer was essentially the, the executive team. So it was Dave Lemp and Andy Jassy was our customers. Uh, and that was to show them glimpses of things that didn't yet exist inside of Amazon. So it wasn't like, here's a new Amazon Echo, or like, oh, you know, what do you think of uh, 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 this Amazon product? It was more all-encompassing scenarios of, oh, here's a scenario of the future of a certain demographic, and they're using this, that, and the other technologies, and they're powered by the sun, or alternative energy, alternative resource management. And I think Amazon was trying to see where would they fit in that future? Is there a business model there for Amazon? Because, you know, it's one of the world's largest companies. It's definitely the largest logistics company in the world. And so with that immense amount of power behind them, they were like, we can actually, like, deliver and change the world if we want to. We've just got to decide what is it that we want to do, you know, in the next 10, 15 years, because everything was, like, 10, 15 years out. So, so that's what Futures Group was. Uh, it was a very unique and special group inside of Amazon that kind of ran to its own, I guess, tempo and, you know, to its own sort of initiatives. It wasn't part of, you know, Alexa or Echo or any of the kind of internal divisions uh, inside of Amazon. But, of course, the flip side being that um, when the economy started to uh, struggle, Amazon did as Amazon, you know, does and just say, okay, anything that's not a profit center, just stop. And so all of the further future possibilities were kind of wound down. They were like, okay, you know, we're not going to, we're not focusing on any of that stuff anymore. So, so for me, it was very much like, okay, then I guess, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to work on Echo or Alexa or, you know, even their Echo Frames glasses. 
Right, right. Because, you know, Amazon invested heavily into like the Echo Frames, for example. They didn't have a visual component, but they did have Assistant, yeah. which is kind of groundbreaking that you can walk around yeah. with your Assistant. That's right. Um, but then at this Futures Group, you weren't putting some of the ecosystem that was already put forth, but it was more like, hey, what's happening for the future of Amazon? How do we fit in there? Maybe with AWS, maybe even with this e-commerce portion. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's it was, awesome. It was across the entire company. I mean, of course... We were trying to use wherever possible using things that we had or are on the roadmap, but we weren't bound by, for example, Echo Frames. You know, we could go further and say, well, what about if it did have displays in it? And it was more like a proper immersive headset. And what if that ended up being what the kids want to wear in 10 years from now? What would that look like for us? And so, you know, designing those future glasses and headsets and environments and all the things in between and how AWS would work in it and so on. And so that was really, that was there. We were try, there to try and join the dots between. Mm. That's super cool. Now coming from, you know, the original MetaView, Amazon, Google, um, what is your thoughts on uh, interfaces of where the current industry stands today uh, and where can it approve upon? Do you like the interfaces uh, in XR today? And, and what do you think is most important to tackle and to fix? I mean, yeah, that's a good question because um, I've never been a fan, although I understand, and I'll give some context. I've never been a fan of like taking what we have here, you know, wholesale and kind of just like, whoop, stick it on your face. Kind of. Yeah, to put, take your mobile phone and just yeah, stick it on your face. Yeah, we had a for this in Google. It was called SWAF, smartwatch on face. And it's kind of the derogatory <laughs> term that people used internally. It was like, oh, did you see that SWAF concept? And everyone's like, yeah, you know, it's, oh, my God, it's terrible. Um, I think there was this idea, and that was partially, remember, that was from Glass, because Glass was out of patience, popping on your face. Right. So there was an understanding of, like, if the future is just, you know, popping up, you have three messages or, you know, send a quick, you know, send a quick SMS to David or something like this, that there's not enough value there for people to wear these kinds of class of devices. So it has to be more than that. It has to do more than that. And that's problematic because then it means it's more expensive, more complex. But, I mean, one of the things that we did at Meta, which obviously, as you probably remember, David, was a bone of of discussion and contention within was the kind of schemorphic aspects of 3D. So uh, whereas right. the original meta was like, make everything visually literal. So like, you know, if you have a, a, a toggle button like on off, make it visually have a mechanical action that's like, you can see it on off. Uh, I know our, our dear CEO at the time, Maron, is very, very strong on this. Um, but... In hindsight, I can see now, even though we went, I think, too far in some ways with it, there is an element of that that rings true going forward. And that is the idea of priors and affordances. So, you know, there's not a lot of priors and affordances that make sense in a 3D context when you've just got flat buttons and, you know, a green button for yes and a red button for no and so on. And you're tapping these buttons in the air and the air floating all air. I think that the UIs of the moment, you know, and it goes the same for the Vision Pro, are designed a little bit like the iPhone, the first iPhone, which was trying to drag people from their filofaxes 
to buying funds. So there, it was heavily skeuomorphic, as you remember, with like rich Corinthian leather-bound calendar apps. It's That's right. And all of this was meant to have a sense of familiarity to get you across into this new world and feel comfortable using it so that then the UI could start to modernize and shift, you know. I see a similar thing now with interfaces in, um, in MR. I think the journey has to be faster, though, because the, the need for newness is there much more with, uh, you've got to remember, generationally, uh, a lot of people have, have, have grown up, you know, watching Ready Player One and have seen all these, you know, Lawnmower Men and all the rest of it in between, sci-fi and so on. And they have a certain expectation about the future. So if you kind of dumb it down and go, well, let's give you just, you know, floating notifications again, there's a bit of a kind of meh attitude. Like, oh, who cares? <laughs> like, wow me. Like, where's the, where's the pizzazz? Where's the, where's the future? And I think that this is going to be something that, you know, even for Apple and for everyone in between, if we, if we dwell too long in floating panels of, of you know, boxes and, and buttons, then we'll miss the whole point of the transition to the medium. We'll just end up replicating, you know, the smartwatch on the face. And I think that's fine to start, but we've got to quickly got to quickly into new, exciting methods of interaction. And I think as long as it follows natural more natural priors then there's no need to sort of over explain because you think about any tutorials are needed in games to explain ui you know i mean if you think about modern interfaces you know it's always a worry for me where it's like oh before you can play this game you need to go through the tutorial where it's got an overlay that points to all the buttons and arrows and explains what all of it does and then when that kind of overlay goes away you're like wait, what was it again? Like, I have no idea what these abstract things do. Um, let me just go back and try it again. And I think that that points to this idea that it's fine for a game if you're invested in it, but uh, you'll go through the effort. But for a, for a lot of people who just want to pick these things up and experience this new paradigm, it needs to be much more uh, uh, clear with its sort of um, visual understanding within the medium like to, so you can look at something and kind of understand its behavior and, and how you're meant to interact with it so i think that's that's something that you know is just a natural part of of what we have to go through uh to get to the the place where it's ubiquitous and people are not scratching their head going you know how does this i don't understand it i mean and you know that happens all the time it matter <laughs> it's like this is cool but like how, what, how does it what am i meant to do <laughs> Right. And these things are uh, the modern challenge of the medium because it is a big leap. It's a it's a giant leap in many ways. So, yeah, hundred percent. I think um, I think for people that are new to this industry, um, not only is there a new way of understanding how this information gets portrayed in three dimensions, but there's a lot of substantial benefits of mixed reality. Um, what do you think the benefits are for the end user when you provide the mixing of virtual and real world? Uh, what does that mean for end users? Well, I think if you do it if you do it well, what it does is it definitely replaces everything that you've had today. And if you think about all the junk we carry around with us, you know, pockets, watches, you know, watches on wrists, pockets with a phone in, a bag with a laptop, 
a desktop machine when you get home and everything has to be synced and charged and you know charging is the modern you know sort of issue that we have to deal with all the time i think if you do it correctly and you have this mixed reality future people will understand that you can have so much richer understanding of your real world environment so you can query the real world in a way and and a way of expressing it that it was not really possible or practical before um for example you know one of the things that we did at google which was really a big sort of hit was you know nest we all know what the nest is little display with just you know the numbers of the temperature on and yes you can dial through the menu and so on but you know what if you wanted to um see the week's uh uh you know power usage on average then you could look at the nest and then it would just put it up all around the nest on the wall and suddenly you'd have this temporal display that's not taking over your house you can see it it's useful for you I get an insight that is not possible through the little UI, and I don't want to be fishing around in my pocket and opening an app, finding the right app, or get, getting my watch and scrolling it. I can just say, hey, show me the last, look at the nest and say, hey, show me the last week's data usage, and you know, plot the graph of the wall. Maybe I can touch it and touch points on the wall, and then it will show me more information. It's a very visually rich and expressive way of understanding the world around you, or you know, I know that back at Meta, one of Marone, the CEO's favorite use cases, which I think was great, was, you know, the ability to walk around a forest, look at a flower and just say, hey, what is this? And then it pops up what it is and it shows the, the genius and it's like, oh, there's others around that are like this. And if you think about how it's done today, you know, it's like, oh, quick, there's a flower. Let me find the app that I take the picture with, click wait for the query to go up, analyze the picture. Then the picture comes back, but it doesn't know what I want to know yet. So I better start typing in like, what is it that I actually want to know? And there's a whole set of sort of chunked sequences to get the answer you want. And in the end, you end up with a web page of results and you have to work out, you know, which one makes the most sense for the context that you were just trying to find out, you know, based on the shape of the petals of the flower or whatever. So I think mixed reality adds a certain magic to the world so i can see it helping educate people i can see it becoming rich learning environments for you know for children for kids um we know that this is uh very effective to teach people as a medium you know oculus did this a long time ago did a bunch of studies on with kids and showed them you know things inside of the vr and then quizzed them and they do much better than the kids reading the books um on in, in these quizzes and i think will transition into a different form of relationship with the world around us. And that for me is the point. It's not to disappear from the world and say, oh, you know, it's all burning, climate change, so I'm just going to hide in the corner and live in my own little world. I think what's interesting about mixed reality is it doesn't take away the real world. If anything, it can actually inform you about what's going on in the real world around you and somehow make you more of an active participant in the world um, while at the same time staying out of the way when you don't need it right it's not about filling your world with advertisements as much as advertisement people would like those are beautiful examples you touched on so much there um, I think uh, the the metaphor of being able to learn about any object in the world with in, in augmenting that is is very useful that example you had with plants in a forest 
Um, the other example that you touched upon was Nest and your maybe your your watch to extend the screen instead of being able to look yeah. at a small UI, you're able to blow that up as as big as you want. Um, there's going to be a trend now with with more body worn computing. I, you probably saw the the human demo. Uh, one of the founders of yeah. the iPhone, he, he also created yeah. this new interface called Human. There's going to be now more body worn computing yeah. devices. And there's a lot of implications of that with mixed reality. You touched upon some, which is like augmenting the screen and having that. Where else do you see wearables being enhanced by mixed reality? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, one of the things I think that's going to be the, the ongoing challenge, the same for Humane, and it's also for, uh, uh, Humane, for um, uh, Apple Vision Pro and everything else, is the sun. So um, it's okay if you live in a place with no sun, but for the most part, I live in a place with a lot of sun. And I think that a yeah. lot of the visualization aspects of the wearables struggle in bright sunlight, right? Uh, you mm -hmm. can't see, you know, through your mixed reality glasses or AR glasses, you struggle with the, the brightness of the real world. You know, that's why we wear sunglasses often in, in bright sunlight. But also, you know, like Humane uses a projector system, which is going to struggle in bright sunlight uh, to fight against mm -hmm. the sun. So I think that wearables will go through different kinds of transitions. I think that the visualization layer is most effective when it's nearest to your eye, because then you've got less issues of light seeping in between, let's say. Um, now, whether that's like closed in or making sure that light doesn't seep in or you've got like digital pass-through like uh, the Vision Pro, um, I think these are ways of dealing with it. Not perfect by any means, but I think that they're ways of dealing with these things. But the other wearables, I think, are going to become more like different insights into your physiology and your condition. Uh, it's something That's that cool. I did at Amazon. I worked on Halo, which was used tone of voice analysis. So it would listen to your, not your words. It wasn't like analyzing your words and what, what you were saying. It was uh, trying to pick up, and it did it very successfully, actually, on, like, are you sounding tense or angry? Or, are you, you know, there's this whole science, obviously, behind this real science around just the tonalities are an indication of your mental state, not the words themselves. And so um, that was, we would give you insights into your kind of mental health situation at Halo. That was also, you know, had his own issues because it was like, Oh, but Amazon is listening to me, or Jeff Bezos is listening to me. <laughs> Jeff was not listening to you, but anyway, um, it's like a lot of people are worried about having all these sensors and all these cameras and all these things looking at them. You know, even with the like, the Vision Pro has you know backward-facing cameras to look at your eyes uh, for eye tracking and so on, and, and look at your facial kind of interface area. And so there's all these different things that I think will be challenges as well as people adopt more and more of these systems. But I do also want to say that, you know, wearables is one part of it. The other part is the other sensors in the house, because right now you have to put a UI on a sensor for it to be read. And so what this will allow is sensors to essentially disappear into the walls. Like in the future, you may buy you know, little pucks that don't have anything on them whatsoever that are given to builders when they build the house and they put them in the walls. And all they do is send sensory data back to any of the devices that you use for visualization so that you can call up at any moment the the kind of interface that you want to 
interact with, but you don't have to have persistent screens or LED, you know, displays all over the place. You can have a very serene, very calm environment, but only on demand do you want it, do you, can it kind of light up and light up. So I think that's a much healthier sort of understanding. Same goes with wearables. You, maybe the Apple Watch in the future won't have a screen on it at all because they'll be like, you don't need it if you've got the Vision Pro. Right, so you just you just want something that measures your heartbeat or your your pulse oxidization and so on. So, this is it where it gets exciting for me because it gets more subtle, it gets more humanistic. It's less people staring at blue screens all the time, um, and I think that is a much healthier sort of society in many ways. That's cool. So, what you're saying is that. With the future of mixed reality, a lot of the technology that we see will go away because it's embedded and it's almost inferior or maybe, you know, uh, hidden sensors in the walls, heartbeat rating from your watch. But then how you visualize all of this is through your headset when they become more affordable, more lightweight, more comfortable to wear all that. That's cool. Um, You know, I think um, especially for mixed reality, you know, you mentioned the building and having sensors. AEC or architecture, engineering, construction is a is a prime Absolutely. industry use case where I want to visualize the building before I actually put people into it or spend yes. money on this building. Um, you know, construction, you can probably see some, you know, visualizations. What if we did this yeah. or that and, and then actually see the visualization take place? So you see an architecture and engineering construction, mixed reality. I really think that's a that's a huge problem yeah. solver for the industry. What other industries do you think are going to be disrupted with mixed reality today? Yeah, I mean, today? if you think about the, like to take the, the sensor discussion we're just having, you know, I can imagine a future where you you swallow these sensors and then you go to the doctor and the doctor <laughs> looks at you with their, you know, their headset on and, you know, they're like, just stand there. And then it brings up all the charts around you and it's showing blood flow or it's showing, you know, your systolic average or whatever. And you've not got all these things you have to put on and pump up and be like, try all these things. Um, It's just like, great, you know, the patient's here. I get a good understanding of the kind of, you know, how the, so to speak, the engine is running (laughs) uh, inside of you. (laughs) And um, I think it's less invasive in, in many ways. So I think that's one thing is medical industry is going to be really opened up. And of course, it was the same at Meta. You know, one of our main, as you remember, you know, um, main interested uh, industries was the medical industry. You know, we worked with Stanford at the time. You remember they were had the headsets for understanding surgery and so on. So there's definitely links there. I think that um, in, there is, it's going to kind of change a lot of, Industries where you have to gain an insight into something. So you could even imagine, you know, take it further and be like car manufacturers have a OBD interface that's plugged in, you know, and then the mechanics who work for Toyota, let's say, they can open the hood and look at the engine and it's showing like this is a block. And then instead of, you know, paying for them to go, I don't know, let me just spend a few hours taking things apart and having a look. Um, There may be ways to gain this kind of insight through this fusion, like sense of fusion, so to speak, between 
you know, what's there in the real world, and then the ability to kind of bring up all the information about it that you need, and in a very private way. So again, it's like, it's something that can keep the world kind of semi-private. It's not like I'm broadcasting these things to all and sundry, but if you combine security uh, attributes with that, which obviously would be there, you have very, very private ways that only certain you know, only certain people get to see certain kinds of information. And I think it's going to be the same with people with headsets looking at each other in the future as well. So you're going to have a lot of, um, uh, uh, I guess, you know, the, the, the easiest way to say it is like, you know, the kind of cosplay sort of stuff going on because they're already doing it in Snap and, you know, dressing up and, you know, wearing all different kinds of costumes it's, it's inevitable this is going to be a huge part of mixed reality because you can identify visually as whatever you want to be and then you know anyone in the vicinity with the headset will look at you and they will see you as a dragon or they will see you as whatever it is you want to manifest it becomes really kind of a rich uh, artistic expression medium for young people in the future whereas right now you know again they've got to go hey look check this out look at this you know, and you've got to share the phone or send a picture to everyone. And in the future, you'll all be sitting around going, how, how great do we look? Don't we look amazing? And it's like, whoa, like that's an amazing costume. So I think expressiveness, artistry, science, they're all going to be like tremendously impacted by these, this technology as it starts to gain more of a sort of traditional foothold and starts to replace the devices that we, that we have today. That, that's super cool. I think the things you mentioned regarding societal impact of how people want to identify themselves or portray themselves to the world, I think uh, that check mark is checked. I think that's really cool. Um, I think there's also things in terms of societal impact. I have a theory that with generative AI and understanding you know, minute facial expressions, technically the AI can know when you're lying, right? So that, that's also a societal thing that we'll have to address. What if people can't lie in the future, right? Um, you know, is that good for society? Is that bad? I don't know. You know, it can go both ways, depending on if you're being lied to or you're the one lying, right? But how else do you envision near future impact of mixed reality on society, especially considering user interactions and yeah, experience? Yeah, I mean, it is definitely a double-edged sword, right? We've been through the sort of happy, happy valley of it, but there's clearly a darker place as well. Um, and, I, and, you know, that is something that I have you know, been aware of through my entire career. Uh, I even wrote um, in the book that I did for oh, yeah. there was one section in it where I talked about a future. And uh, it's funny, actually, the story behind it. And all it does is talk about a future where, you know, everyone's wearing these devices. You're on a public transport bus or something it's it's set in the near future um you know and people have subscribed to kind of um choose your own adventure type stories and then essentially what's happening is people are hallucinating it's a kind of like accepting hallucination right because if you can if you can overlay people and objects in the real world and imbibe them to become whatever it is then at some point, your idea of what reality is starts to sort of fall apart, or at least what you think of as reality traditionally, and becomes more like people, you know, who are like, 
you know, crazy hallucinating drug takers who were like chasing in, invisible things down the road. And so in my chapter, you know, there's like a guy on a bus staring at another person because he thinks it's a character in the adventure series and he freaks out, shouts at the guy. The guy's like, I have no idea what's going on. He gets up, runs off the bus. You get off the bus. There's two people running down the street screaming. There's like all kinds of stuff going on all over the place where people are in their own subscribed adventure, so to speak. Uh, you know, And I think that that is something that we do have to be mindful of um, because, yeah, of course, you know, people can play games and as they do uh, uh, today. It's not this uh, video game nasties, nasties and a warning, but it's like the difference was before is you could always box in reality into the device that you're holding. So, you know, if you look outside the periphery of your iPad or your games console, it's like, oh, yeah, right, it's the real world. Of course, you know, that's, that's not real. This is real. Uh, around me, but in a mixed reality world, it's going to become incredibly difficult, especially with graphics getting better, everything becoming more photorealistic, deep fakes, AI, etc. It's like jump forward 10 years and the world may be a really difficult place for the human eye and the human ear to ascertain what's real and what's not anymore. Where you're like, oh, I don't like, I don't know what's going on anymore, really. Um, and that could actually trigger a situation where people start taking the headsets off, you know, to trust each other. They're like, as a trust giving thing, it's like I take, you know, it's like taking my sword off or something, you know, down to all the warriors <laughs> in respectfulness. We don't right. mean harm. And I feel like there may be where you're like, look, you know, David, hey. You take this off and you're like, I take it off. We see each other now. Like, I trust what I see now from your face. You trust what I see from your face. Conversely, I think people will bend those rules. You've, I've already seen a bunch of, um, you know, visual disruptors that people are selling now, like masks that have certain attributes that throw off, like, computer vision systems. So it's very difficult to track faces. It's very diff difficult to analyze visually. The body shape, if you wear a certain, like, I can't remember, there was a guy wearing a top that was covered in sheep or something that was, like, done in all these, like, very natural colors. And it was all collage, and it looked awful, of course. But the visual, the CV systems just look, you know, it's like, man, man, man. And he sees him, and it's like, a sheep, I don't know, it's a sky sheep? It's, I don't know. <laughs> and so people are, like, in this heavily censored surveilled world, you know, people may be wearing facial devices and wearing certain sort of asymmetrical clothing and things, anything that, that throws off systems of recognition, which forces you to sort of the only way then you can work is to become more human again and be like, OK, I'll take my mask off if you take yours off kind of thing. I And then we'll right. see each other for real. So I think it, it makes for a very interesting future. And of course, yeah, we're trying to limit the the uh, bad side of things, of course. So, Absolutely. I mean, that's part, that's part on everyone in this industry to try and do that. You know, and I know a lot of people care deeply about this stuff. Yeah, I think um, that's something that a lot of people in the industry face every day. Like, what is what are the ramifications of this? And, you know, I think that's, that's a responsibility that everyone who works in XR should really keep in the back of the mind. What is the societal impact? Is this good for our future? 
Um, speaking of the future, you you switched gears from working at Amazon and Google, focused on XR, but now working as a startup, as a head of UX at Bootloader. Um, tell me about Bootloader and, and how you're redefining human-computer interaction. What yeah, are you doing? Yeah, so, there? I mean, I, 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 obviously, I can't go into like, all the detail uh, at this point because we're still technically in stealth mode. But what I can tell you is the, the kind of origin story of it and how I got involved. Um, I, uh, I just uh, left Amazon earlier this year, the start of the year, and uh, a good friend of mine, a CEO of a company that I started in Vancouver, Proxy, um, which is electrical wearable company, um, he said to me, hey, there's this, you, 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 you want to meet this guy? Um, he's interested in, in talking to leaders in AR and VR and so on. There wasn't a lot of like context, to be honest, but um, he said he's really intriguing. You need to meet him, uh, the CEO. So I met him and, you know, obviously I've been attracted to crazy CEOs uh, from the past, <laughs> um, uh, like at Meta. Uh, and I'm a passionate CEOs, like people who really, really have that kind of vision and I'm also really, really attracted to things that are not sort of typical and safe as well. So I met with uh, Brian Pels, who's the, the CEO of Bootloader. And so he pitches me. He, we talk a bit. He talks about the book that I wrote, talks about my history and, you know, Google and so on. And then he, he pitches the idea of what Bootloader is trying to do, which was nothing like what I didn't originally be thinking it was going to be. And I initially, my reaction was kind of like, that is really different. Um, I, I couldn't place it to anything that I'd done before. I couldn't really place it to anything that I knew other people were doing, but it was tangentially linked to AI. So the common theme okay. there was uh, uh, artificial intelligence. And, you know, just to be clear, um, the thing that attracted me is it wasn't OpenAI or ChatGPT. It was not a mm. call and response system of AI. It wasn't mm. meant to be uh, like, ask me questions and I shall give you answers. Uh, so that was where I was like, what is it? And it was about emotion. And so really the idea is of effective AI. And this is an area that actually isn't, it's, it's not as explored as obviously the hotter area of, you know, ChatGPT and building services around it. Um, but then when you combine that with um, uh, mixed reality, augmented reality, you have the potential for new forms of being. And it was something that I, I initially I was like, I don't even know where to start with it. Um, and then through further conversation and realizing that we, uh, uh, not only was Brian the CEO, but uh, uh, my colleague Mark Drummond had joined. And Mark uh, was the uh, head of AI at Apple. And so he left Apple on the day of the Vision Pro announcement. And he'd been working on that and he joined Bootloader. So it was like, okay, we are very legitimized right now we are really really um you know doing something you might hear my dog barking in the background hopefully not always... oh that's good no that's fine yeah, so anyway my, my he, dog barks all the time he joined uh, a bootloader as well and that gave me a sense of okay this is legitimate it's an area that apple has looked at it's an area that i think is brand spanking new 
Uh, and of course, it's only going to make sense when you have it in mixed reality. It's only going to be able to manifest correctly in mixed reality, at least, you know, to, to, to understand the kind of emotive and effective aspects of AI that we are working on. And so the company is actually based in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. Uh, it's an American company. Uh, Brian is, is, is from the Bay Area, actually. Uh, um, lived in Napa for a long time. And um, yeah, basically, we have a small team. Design and AI is here on the West Coast of the US. The, a lot of the kind of 3D work is done in Vietnam. Uh, they have a lot of like, you know, game developers and so on to do the kind of meat and bones of the building blocks of like, you know, using Unity and, and Unreal and so on. Um, and Polyspatial we use. And obviously we use um, the tools from Apple themselves because we are uh, definitely looking at targeting the Apple Vision Pro. Um, so, yeah, it's been a wild ride. And it, honestly, Dave, it's, it's something that... Um, I have never done in this way before. It's like genuinely new. Um, and so the challenge is vast, but the, the the people are awesome and a lot of the passion is there. And that's what I missed about the big company as well, is in startups, you get a lot of very driven, passion-filled people uh, who want <laughs> to change the world. And I missed a bit of that. And also, you know, um, uh, I, I missed uh, just being close with people and like working on things together. So I was just in Vietnam a couple of weeks ago um, for for a couple of weeks. I'll be going back again in, uh, in probably late November. And so, and and then some of them come over, of course, to to the uh, West Coast as well. But it works out really well. Um, so uh, yeah, I have devices here and. Uh, I, yeah, I, I do my stuff from the Mojave Desert, <laughs> future type of AI for a future medium. Um, it's, I couldn't have imagined I would be doing this. Wow, that sounds very mysterious, but sounds very cool, Karis. I want to know more. Um, since you mentioned it, you know, Apple Vision Pro, it thoughts. I mean, that, that came out. A lot of things that we were doing at the original Meta we were actually, uh, I don't know if you had the same experience, but looking at the big announcement, I was like, mm, this seems so familiar. Tell me about your thoughts on so, the Apple Vision So, I mean, Pro. it didn't come as a surprise. I knew it was coming. Um, you know, we've got to remember back in the day at Meta, we worked with Apple uh, on a few things um, because we were obviously, you know, one of the pioneers in the space. We, we had the knowledge and had the experience. And so it made sense, obviously, the connection as well with Mike Rockwell from Apple and Meta as well. So it's interesting with that context to then jump to the Apple Vision Pro announcement. And there's a couple of things happened on the announcement day. Number one was uh, I got a call from a colleague who shall remain nameless, who's a very senior, senior level at Meta, as in like Facebook Meta, who called me on the day and said, I am so sorry, we never listened to you. Um, uh, and that, you know, you were right. Like I said earlier in this thing, uh, in this interview, uh, I said Apple would do something more immersive and I was told, no, they won't. They will never do that at Google. And, uh, and then as it turns out, those people went on to uh, Facebook and then they were apologizing. So that was the first weird thing of the day was like, it's all coming back. It's like, it's all coming back. There was a lot of like the, you know, the, the, the interface attributes that we'd had 
at Meta as well with the floating screens and the interaction. So there, there was a lot of similarities. But the one thing, of course, that I was ha- – or the two things I'm happy about, but the big one was, um, thank God it's over. It's like, finally, <laughs> the one company that everyone has speculated, will they, won't they, yada, 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 has finally been like, yes, we are, here it is. And so it's kind of like, now we can just stop speculating on Apple and what if Apple enters – so I think that was at the minimum with great. And then obviously you know, looking at the hardware and the detail that they put in to the hardware, um, it's a set of compromises. I get it. You know, they, they obviously having to lean in initially to more of like, you know, the iPad traditional UI to make sure there's a value there. Um, I think that it will be second to none integration with the rest of your Apple products because that's a huge problem and has always has been, as even from the meta days where you needed to boot it up special with a special PC and it didn't interface with things. Still an issue with you know meta today where it's still largely a standalone device. It doesn't really integrate in any meaningful way or in any kind of smooth way with, I mean, the UX is terrible. Um, uh, with uh, the device, the other devices in my life, obviously with Apple, it's just going to work. So that is in itself, they've solved a huge burden of uh, adoption because, and actually, believe it or not, that was part of our plan at Google was like, hey, we own the like soup to nuts ecosystem of this. So surely we can build the whole thing to work seamlessly together. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, exactly. So. Uh, yeah. Conceptually, yeah. <laughs> Rest in yeah, peace, Stadia. Yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think Apple will nail that, and they have nailed that. I think Apple has a lot of draw, so uh, I think it will pull people in who maybe never would have even considered the medium before. So I think that's great. I think it legitimizes, of course, a lot of the startups that have been struggling in the space. I think it's going to open up much more investment in the space, even though... It's not going to be, you know, an iPhone rags to riches story. Apple knows this is a long haul. It always is. You know, if you think about the, the time from the Apple One, uh, you know, with Jobs and Wozniak showing it off, you know, as the wooden box with the board in and the, you know, the monitor all the way up to the kind of Macintosh launches. That was a long time. So it's um, it's going to be similar with for, for us now. Apple will introduce it. It'll it'll gain some buzz, it will get traction. It's an amazingly built device, you know, no expense spared. That's why it's expensive. Um, and I think they've done what they've had to do to do this at this stage. But is this the final form? No. Is this going to be the thing that people are going to wear walking around? No. <laughs> Maybe some might do in the Bay Area. <laughs> um, hope not. We don't get the glass hole situation that we had uh, with Google back in the day. But anyway, assuming that, you know, it, it isn't going to be the thing that, you know, mum and dad are going to be wearing walking around. Uh, I think that this is a journey now that Apple will keep investing in because, you know, Apple has been doing it a long time behind the scenes now, a long time. And so, you know, they the, to reveal this now is more like the, the it's the end of the beginning for them. It's not the beginning of the end. So it's like, okay, now we can actually mm-hmm. start like talking more openly and getting more people involved and so on, you know. And I think that was awesome about the the um the launch, you know. It was finally, like I said, I was just like, 
oh, here it is. Finally, it's over. <laughs> I know more. Right. Yeah. And there's a timeline now where consumer yeah, adoption exactly. happens, right? Exactly. We, you know, I think we're it's waiting that for that moment. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, you know, I mean, yeah. I, I think it will sell. It, you know, it will definitely, people will buy them. Um, I think that it will serve as a thing that just helps expose other people to trying it out. You know, I think a lot of people will, uh, early adopters will buy it. And obviously prosumers that have got the, you know, $4,000 in their bank account they want to spend, they'll buy them. But the, the important thing is not that, it's who it gets exposed to. You put it on people's faces and they get to see it. And they're like, oh, I That's never right. realized this is the future, isn't it? And then that's as it starts to grow. So that as the devices get cheaper, obviously more plentiful, start to come down in price. You know, then those people are already prepped. They're all ready to go. They're like, take my money. Now it's only, you know, $2,000 or, you know, $1,500. Sure, I'll do it. It's like a new iPhone. So I think that's when you get this kind of Cambrian explosion of adoption. Um, but for now, we're still in that, like, we've just got over the kind of initialization stages, which for us is weird because we've been in this place for so long. It's weird to think, finally, it's starting. And it's like, wait, how many years is this? <laughs> we've been, yeah, invested a decade in this thing. So yeah. to me, it's kind of weird because <laughs> you feel old and a bit like a veteran. And you don't want to be necessarily. You still yeah. want to have that innocence and excitement. And you're like, this is it. Um, but I think that one thing that, that people like, you know, yourself and myself can bring is just some of that kind of down to earth context of like, you know, these things have been tried before. A lot of these things are not net new ideas. Uh, they've just been more polished and more executed with a lot more time to bake. Um, and I think that's always the risk of the early adopters and the pioneers is that they come out the door with guns blazing. And sometimes, you know, you just get shot to pieces and it's like, that's the way it is. Um, but I think that there's a bright future now, you know, maybe there wasn't two years ago, you know, there may be the space, but I think mm. that the tide has turned again. I just hope that it stays turned. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the excitement's still there. It's just a matter of, I think the content that they're going to release. I think there's going to be more um, hands-on uh, uh, experiences that people will be sharing. I mean, I think, one thing that they've got right is that form factor yes. that Apple does really well. It's still a dev kit, but they needed to get eye tracking working with your hand input. Uh, they needed to make it really natural. What are your, some of your predictions in the next, let's say, one year time frame to three year time frame for XR today? So I think today? you'll have the launch event next year when it hits the streets and when all the NDAs are moved, removed. Everyone will get real. I think it will be a little bit of a divider in the in the industry. I'm going to say there will be the new school that's all in on the Apple approach and is like, they've got the right way with privacy, privacy and all those things. There will be the arguably the, the OG side of, of, of VR and AR that will be a little bit screwing because it's like, you know, not fully VR, yeah. really going full in on gaming yet. Um, and there'll be mm -hmm. a little bit of like, hmm, you know, is Apple really one of us or are they doing their usual thing of like going it alone? And I think that you know, classic Apple, mm. just go it alone. They don't care whether you follow or not. Um, they're just going to do their thing. But I think what it will do is um, it will create a catalyzation next year 
of new products coming out on the Vision Pro. I think we're going to see, like ourselves at Bootloader, a whole new category of, of experiences that arguably would not work so well on other devices because they lack the certain sensors or the certain resolution of the sensors that are on the Vision Pro. So there's a bar that's kind of been set. So I think a bunch of people jump there. I think that people start to jump ship next year, start to port their VR things over as they see the kind of groundswell of interest. And then what's going to happen, I think, is, you know, come 2024, 25, Apple will release a new cheaper version of the headset, um, you know, whether it's Vision Pro or Vision or whatever it is, uh, to kind of bring the experience access down a little bit so it can go a little bit broader as well. Because obviously, as you bring it down, it, it can go a bit broader, start to become a slightly more mainstream. And I can actually imagine that by 2024, you know, the Apple ads on TV that are famous will all be like the Vision Pro. If we, you know, if it before it was kids, you know, hipsters rolling around on their bed with their iPhones, it's going to be cool looking glasses, cool clothes, going out on a night in the town, things popping up. And that, that is when everyone will be like, Oh, my God. I have to have this now. This is it. It's happening. And I think that is maybe two to three years. You'll start to hit just that tipping point where maybe payment plans for buying the device will be really there. So it won't be a big hit out of the box. A bit like early mobile days, right? You know, the, all the costs were hidden. Otherwise, people would never have bought phones back then. And I think that once those costs get hidden in those Apple payments, Apple Pay payments. Then I think <laughs> the kids will start lining. I know my son is already asking me, and I'm like, absolutely out of the question. You are not. Um, <laughs> but, you know, as time goes forward, as we all know, this will start to change. And then I, I imagine, just like with the smartphone wars uh, of the past, some platforms won't make it. You can only, uh, you know, People can only support so many platforms. People only will own one device. They're not going to be swapping headsets mm -hmm. around because they want to play a game and then they're going to do this. So people will start to make that hard cut like iOS, Android, and then build their ecosystems based off the platform. That means I don't know what will happen with HT, you know, the outliers like HTC or Samsung or whoever. Um, I think for Meta, it may end up where they're the only surviving equivalent for iOS because they've invested so much already. So I can imagine an iOS Meta, which funny enough runs on Android, uh, iOS Meta hegemony of like, oh, you're either with these guys who are more like cheap and loads of gaming and you can give the headset away for Christmas because it's cheap you know, like a Nintendo kind of approach uh, versus, you know, Apple still is the high end, the brushed aluminum, you know, the kind of like, yeah, like, oh, yeah you know, that's yeah. for the serious people. And, you know, that's that's really the expensive stuff for the pros. Uh, and I think that mm -hmm. is probably what will happen. And a lot of the smaller, you know, probably companies will either shut down or move to just like making software that runs on any of these devices. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of my prediction with it. Um, of course, hopefully, we don't have a Google Glass moment, number two. 
someone against it. <laughs> A-poles. And I go like, you know, my date right. came out and met me and they were wearing an Apple Vision Pro and it was creepy and he wouldn't take it off. <laughs> and it's like, it's like, whoa. Let's hope we've learned from the vision. Yeah. The, the- you know, we mentioned a couple of those features that Apple Vision Pro has in terms of eye tracking, hand tracking. What what advice do you give for aspiring designers going into user experience for mixed reality now with some of these new features that are coming out with some of these new headsets? What advice? Well, do you I mean, give eye tracking that? is a very very powerful control method, but also insight method that can be abused, of course. Um, it's almost the holy grail for advertisements because, of course, it's all about clicks and eyes on and what you can charge for. Apple has taken a very, very privacy-first stance, so they don't expose the eye-tracking data to any third party. So that means that for advertisers, they're kind of SOL because it's like... no idea if they looked at our advert or not. There's no data being shared from Apple. But for the principles that Apple is using it for, I think it's really good. Like the idea of the gaze and pinch um, as a trigger mechanism is good. I know at Google, we tried to do gaze and then triggering it just from gaze. The problem with that as a designer is that it makes people nervous looking at things because they don't know if it's going to trigger. And that makes me anxious. So the the idea of mm. the confirmation with the click, uh, so there's a kind of you know a relief, yeah. Double you feedback. You need that to keep to make sure that I can look at anything, and it's not like suddenly something is going to happen and I don't know why it happens. Right. So I think the eye tracking system yeah. there is really useful. I also think that eye tracking should eventually be available to third parties for their own use to understand how people are using their application. Um, There's a company out of um, Vancouver, actually, Canada, uh, that I worked with years ago called Cognitive uh, VR, I think it was called. And uh, they were doing like Mm. heat maps of like what you're looking at in a game. So you could understand- That's right. I remember those guys. Better design your game, right? For the the customer. So I think that if Apple starts allowing some of the data that's anonymized to be useful, then it will help people design better applications, less wasteful. Um, And then, you know, the rest of it is the hand uh, interactions. Obviously, you've got uh, the gaze and click for traditional sort of interfaces, but Apple still has full like hand tracking for immersive um, experiences in the Vision Pro. So it will allow you to use gestures or use direct manipulation. They have a bunch of like human interface guidelines, as you'd expect. Just like, actually, just like we had a meta again, the overlap um, that were very similar in like do this, don't do that. Um, I think you know a lot of them are principally useful for designers. I think it's any designers who have not been in the space go grab the user interface guidelines for the Vision Pro from from apple.com, read through it and and really try to understand the, you know, the interaction and the context of the interaction is really, really important. And that's the difference between the this medium and uh, and prior mediums, you know, where, again, you didn't really need to care about the environment that a phone was being used in. As long as you got a phone, it's got a screen, you can, you know, click it. But, um, I think that, yeah, it's 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 exciting for designers with the emerging tools as well, like you know, Shapes VR and 
uh, XR and, and others, I think that is going to start to become the standard, you know, and maybe even in, in design schools, you know, in the future, all the kids will be sitting there with headsets on, you know, doing this. Well, I'm more of an optimist. I, I feel good about that future, but I think all of those things that we mentioned during the show, yeah. we should just be mindful of. Karis, I had such a great time. Uh, what can people yeah, find you? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I, I I used to do a lot more talks. I'm going to start doing more talks again. This is definitely, like with you, David, is the first thing I've done in a long time, um, especially because of Google and Amazon. They were not keen on talking with anyone. But um, now with Bootloader, I'm a bit freer. <laughs> Um, so I'm always up for like speaking at conferences and, and forums like I used to in the past. I can be found at my website, which is the, the uh, Fug space. Uh, so the Fug uh, dot space is um, my website that contains just examples. And it also has some links to my music as well, because my other side of my life is being an electronic musician um, as well. So, I mean, I, I'm kind of all over the place. I have my name is you know one thing I've always been told is having a, a name like mine means I can't hide on the internet. So all you have to do is put my name in, and you'll get like three pages of like nothing but me uh, from Google. Um, and so I, I can't really hide, uh, but <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, I, I, I feel free to contact me through my website, or if you know you want to talk more about this space so, you know i can talk for a long time as you can imagine um about all this stuff it was fascinating karis i had such a wonderful time uh i want to maybe do another show with you we could talk more about your music i i, I told you that we i wanted to delve deep into that but uh, we didn't have time but karis thank you so much man pleasure david it's been awesome chatting with you again those meta, those meta vibes they're still there. Uh, We'll have, we're going to do it again soon. There's going to be a reunion that, that just mark my awesome. words. <laughs> cool.